to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And it was round two of the handouts. Uh, John 6. This morning we're going to be at verses 35 through 40. And uh, really, as I was preparing the, uh, the message this week, um, just thinking the Gospel of John really is an amazing book. Um, on one level, it's, it's really quite simple. Um, you think it's, it's the book you're probably going to give to a new believer, right? Or an unbeliever, or even a child. You'll probably first direct them to the Gospel of John. Some of the clearest expressions of God's love, of the freeness of the gospel, of the nature of the gospel, of saving faith, is in the gospel of John. John 3.16, a glorious verse. And yet on another level, the gospel of John is perhaps one of the most profound books in the New Testament. Of all the gospels, the gospel of John is perhaps the most predestinarian of all of them emphasizing the sovereignty of God in salvation. So while on the one hand, John so clearly holds out the responsibility of each individual to make an individual choice and response of faith towards Christ, on the other hand, it proclaims the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, really more than any other gospel um, in the Bible. It teaches about the total inability of man. We saw that last week. The absolute sovereignty of God in regeneration. The particularity of atonement for those the Father has given the Son. And the certainty that the triune God will preserve these individuals all the way to the end. Um, all of this is in John, and most of this is in our passage this morning. The passage we're going to look at this morning is really one of these mountain peaks in the Gospel of John that highlights the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God and salvation side by side. I would say outside of Romans 9, you know Romans 9 is like Mount Everest in the Bible on this topic. I would say this is perhaps one of the most definitive treatments on this topic anywhere in Scripture, apart from Romans 9. But it's not random. Uh, its context is very important. It comes at a very significant point in this story. You'll remember that we began in chapter 6 with this fourth messianic sign, the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, after seeing this sign, the multitude is ready to crown Jesus as the revolutionary king, a new Moses, who's going to deliver them, not from Egypt, but from Rome, and, and bring in the physical kingdom all at once to the Jews. But Jesus immediately withdraws from them. He's not come to be that kind of a king. He's the new Moses. He is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, but not that kind. He has come to deliver his people, not through warfare, but through being slaughtered as a sacrificial lamb on a brutal cross. He's come not to provide physical well-being to the Jewish people, but to provide spiritual life for the world. He's come to first create a new covenant, a new creation, a new covenant heart in the people to make them fit for the new creation that is coming. He's come to give eternal life, and we've unpacked this over and over. What, what all is involved in eternal life? It's a life that's characterized by the forgiveness of sins, 
a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit to be a life towards God, a life that has fellowship with the triune God, a life that is delivered from the power and dominion of sin. So you could say he's come to make the new covenant promises and the new covenant people and the new covenant heart a reality. That's what he's on a mission for. It's what we all need, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. The problem is that the Jews were largely ignorant of their spiritual condition. For them, they were Jews. We, we have it all. We have all the shadows. We have the sacrifices, the temple, the rituals. The We're set. We're ready for the kingdom. Um, so all we need is this kind of Messiah who's going to deliver it to us. They had failed to see that all these things in the Old Testament were insufficient in themselves to produce spiritual life. They were meant to point them to the one coming. And since they were so ignorant of their true spiritual condition, apart from these new covenant promises all through the prophets in the Old Testament, they did not want the one who had come to address their hearts. And that brings us to our passage this morning. There's a large discourse in John. It goes from verses 22 to 71, and we've entitled it, God's Gift of True Bread, the Flesh of the Son of God for the Eternal Life of Chosen Disciples. In verse 59, we're told that this whole scene takes place in the synagogue as Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. So the crowd tracks him down. He's in Capernaum. He's in the synagogue, sits down, teaching probably on the Sabbath. And that's where this entire discourse takes place. And uh, last week, we hit the first section, verse 22 to 34. Jesus exposes those who come to him wrongly. And if the passage we're going to talk about this morning highlights the sovereignty of God in salvation, this passage here last week that we were in was highlighting the total inability of man to come to Christ as he ought we noted the fundamental problem last week was the crowd's enslavement to this life. All they could think about was this life. We said it's the problem of earthly mindedness. Christ comes over and over, tries to explain to them the spiritual significance of what he's come to do. And they're just so attached to the world, they can't get their minds off of it. Just like Nicodemus, just like the Samaritan woman, all they think about is their temporal Lives, a full belly and deliverance from Rome. It's all they can think about. The point is that that is an evidence of their spiritual condition. They're coming to Jesus to receive him, not for what he's come to be, but for what they want him to be. Well, now we come to our passage this morning in verses 35 to 40. Jesus explains his identity and the essential nature of all true faith in him. And in verses 35 to 36, Jesus will first explain the diametrical responses to the identity of Christ as the bread of life. So the crowd is still confused in verse 34. They say to him, sir, give us this bread always. They still think he's talking about physical bread. So Jesus now, in verse 35, declares straightforwardly, unmistakably, he says to them, I am the bread life. You're probably familiar with John, that there are seven of these I am statements in John. Have the references listed up there. 
the bread of life, the light of the world, door of the sheep, good shepherd, resurrection and life, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. And with this statement here, I am the bread of life, Jesus removes all confusion. It's obvious what he's talking about now. He's not talking about physical bread. The true bread the Father gives, which comes from heaven, is not physical. It's not even given through Jesus like it was given through Moses. No, Jesus is bread. Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus himself has come down from heaven to give life to the world. And when he says, I am the bread of life, I think he's saying two things, all right? So I am the bread of life. What does that mean? I think the first thing it means is I am the bread that is characterized by life, right? Remember, we've talked about this. What happened to the first manna? The next day you woke up and what? It bred worms. It was spoiled. It did not endure. Jesus is saying, I am the bread that is characterized by life. I have life within myself, being God a very God. I am life. I'm characterized by life. I endure. And that brings us to the second nuance. He's the bread of life. He's characterized by life, but he's also the bread which gives life. Right? I am the bread of life. And because I'm characterized by life, all those who consume me will likewise endure forever. Have eternal life themselves. Look, look over to verse 56 to 57. Just to show you that this point um, I think what Jesus is making. We'll come to these verses in a couple weeks, but look now, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father, that's who he is from eternity, living Father sent me, and I live because of my Father as the unique Son, eternally having life in myself. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is the bread of life. He is life and he gives life to all who consume him. We're going to talk about how you do that this morning. And now that he has explicitly stated his identity, there can only be two responses to his person. The first is in verse 35. The response of de desperate dependency on the gracious provision of this person. Look at verse 35 again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Notice that these lines are parallel. Comes is parallel to believe. Hunger is parallel to thirst. And you're meant to read them in light of each other. So let's do that. Let's take these one at a time. First is hungering and thirsting. What does that mean? What does it mean to hunger and thirst? Well, if the food Christ provides is not physical, but spiritual, that means the hungering and thirsting here is what? Not physical, but spiritual hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting represents spiritual needs. If you hunger and thirst, it means that you lack what is necessary to sustain spiritual life. It's like if you're physically hungry and thirsty. But it's more than that. It implies a recognition and a longing that those needs be met, right? This crowd here, 
yeah, they're desperately um, in need of what Christ has for them. But they're not hungry and thirsty. They don't recognize their true spiritual need and true spiritual condition. So hunger and thirst represents you have, you, you lack the necessities to sustain spiritual life and you recognize it. You hunger and you thirst. Those truly hungry have a sense of their guilt. They have a sense of their powerlessness over sin. They have a sense and recognition of the judgment of God that's coming. They know their inability to access God on their own. They hunger, thirst. They recognize it. And this verse promises that this hunger and thirst can be quenched. That brings us to the other pair. Look what it says. Comes and believes. So you come to Jesus by believing. And you believe in Jesus by coming to him as the one who can meet these hungers and these thirsts. That's what it looks like to come and believe Jesus rightly. You come to him for this, for the meeting of these spiritual needs. Flip with me over to chapter 7. It says something very, very similar. Look at verse 37, chapter 7, 37. Jesus here offers a very similar invitation in which the nature of thirsting, as we just described, is identified as the absence of a very significant element of eternal life, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come, same word, to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. And those who were to believe in him were to receive those who come to Jesus rightly are those who come acknowledging and recognizing their desperate need for the Holy Spirit in their life. They need a transformed nature which only God can give. That's what it looks like to thirst. That's what it looks like to come to Christ rightly as the one who provides that. Before we move on, flip back with me to Isaiah chapter 55. I think both of these passages are an illusion back to Isaiah 55. And if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, or even familiar with Isaiah 53, it's the suffering servant. It is the promise of Christ, what he would accomplish in redemption. Isaiah 55 comes as God's personal invitation to bankrupt Israel, to look to the suffering servant and all that he's just accomplished in Isaiah 53, and now the invitation to come bankrupt, spiritually impoverished, and receive everything the servant just accomplished in Isaiah 53. That's what's going on here in Isaiah. Look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Price. They're to come and receive an abundant feast, which they need not pay for, and they could never pay for. And it just highlights the folly and the futility of pursuing other food that you have to work for, right? That's what's going on in John 6. They're after what? Physical food. And then they say, what do we have to do to work to get this food? Isaiah is highlighting the utter futility utter foolishness. You're going to choose physical food over the greatness of the spiritual food Christ offers? You're going to strive for something that God openly 
offers to you? Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread? Why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. What specifically is this food? Look at verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you a sure, everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The new covenant promises. It's the eternal life. And in John 6, Jesus is the food. He's offered to any who are hungry, who recognize their spiritual impoverishment, who see that they desperately need the promises of the new covenant and see Christ as the one who's able to meet it, fulfill it. They come to him freely receiving it, depend on it. Go back to John 6. If that is the proper response, verse 36 then gives us the negative response. This is the response of the crowd. The response of deliberate disbelief in the face of Christ. Jesus said, but I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. They are ignorant of their true hunger and thirst and so they respond to Jesus' signs with unbelief. They've fallen short with only physical sight and no faith. It's very similar to what he said back in verse 29. You're seeking me not because you saw signs. Right? They, 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 they saw the physical signs, but they didn't see past the sign to what it was pointing to. I think Jesus here is saying something like this. You, you've seen me, but not my glory. You've seen me, but not as true bread. You've seen the miracles, but not as signs which point to my glorious reality. You've seen me, but not as the only one who can meet your most desperate needs. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, this crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. And it's the same for us today. We've been given the scriptures and the eyewitness account of John. Right here. According to John 20, 31, this is just as sufficient a base for your faith as beholding Christ with your physical eyes. You're not less advantaged than the first eyewitnesses. But just like then, still now, many come away seeing Christ only on the pages of Scripture, but never seeing him with the eyes of faith. They hear stories like this, but they never come to Jesus in a desperate dependence and with spiritual starvation to him as the only one who can do that. Perhaps they responded to Christ by wanting to escape from judgment. I just want to tack Christ onto my life and go on living my life the, the way it's always been. But they've never come with a kind of wholehearted love, enjoyment, dependency on Christ as a starving person comes to bread. That's the point. That's how you pursue Christ. It's a starving person. To bread, you love the bread, you enjoy it, you consume it, you depend on it. Well, if these two verses are about the diametrical responses to Christ, um, it now sets the stage for the rest of the passage. If man is characterized by this kind of earthly-mindedness, deadness, and blindness to the glories of Christ, then how could any respond to him in the verse 35 kind of way? And if people do respond to him that way, then why did they respond instead of the rest? 
And in verses 37 to 40, we're going to get an answer to that, that question. It's going to show us that what is undergirding that faith, and it's also going to take us beyond that to showing that the same thing that undergirds that faith is also what sovereignly preserves it and keeps it all the way to the end. It's all of grace before and after. Verses 37 to 40, the fundamental reasons for the faith and salvation of any. Jesus explains the fundamental reasons for the faith and salvation of any. It's in these verses that Jesus will give insight into the eternal plan of the triune God and the sovereign involvement of each member of the Trinity in the entire process of salvation of every single believer. Before we dive into these verses, I want to ask really quickly, why does Jesus even go here? So you might be thinking, why, why did Jesus bring this up at all? Why confuse things, Jesus? I mean, we don't want to undercut human responsibility, do we, Jesus? Won't all of this talk about God's sovereignty cause people to throw their hands up and say, well, I can't be held accountable if God is sovereign? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Um, I have three things that I, I think are, are reasons. They're on the back of your outline as a short excursus. Do this really quickly. Why are you bringing this up? I think there's three things. First, he's bringing it up in order to reveal to people the depths of their hopeless condition. He offers spiritual life to dead sinners. There's a problem. Dead people don't respond. <laughs> Dead people don't make decisions. Their, their, their very spiritual condition of spiritual poverty is what blinds them to the glories of Christ. Something in addition to this must happen if any are going to respond. Number two, Jesus goes here in order to knock the block of any pride or presumption out from under our feet. So you might say, yeah, Jesus is the source of my life, but at least I chose to come to him as bread. I did it. It's meant to destroy that kind of pride as though I overcame the resistance of my fallen nature on my own. I did it. Number three. Jesus goes here in order to make it crystal clear that despite the massive unbelief of this crowd, neither his nor his father's plans have failed or been thwarted. And I think this is the main point in our passage. The mission of Christ and the plan of the Father are not dependent on the responses of fickle and rebellious humanity. And so as the crowd rejects Christ, they cannot even boast that by their rejection they are hindering and thwarting Christ's mission. They aren't. It will succeed. So go back to your outline. The first fundamental reason behind the faith and salvation of believers is in verse 37. The operation of the triune God undergirds and guarantees the faith and salvation of believers. This verse has two halves. The first is in verse 37a, the Father's gift of the chosen people to the Son. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Repeatedly in John, Jesus declares that the Father has given a specific people to the Son to redeem. 
We could go to a number of places. Let me invite you to the High Priestly Prayer, chapter 17. You're on holy ground in this chapter. Look at verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 2. Since you've given him eternal uh, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given him. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. The Father has given the Son from eternity past in an arrangement with the Son. They together planned redemption, and the Father has also, in his good pleasure, given a people to his Son. In this verse, we get its specificity. There's a specific people. It says every and which. Every which. All, every that the Father gives. In Greek, it, it really highlights a corporate aspect of this people. It certainly involves the individual, but it's in such a way that it highlights it's a corporate whole. All that the Father has given to me. This whole I will respond to. It's a specific people consisting of specific individuals. But note, this gift of a people to the Son is not in response to their faith. It is the fundamental cause of the faith. Look at the rest of the line. All the Father gives to me, future tense, will come to me. It is not as though God is responding to the faith of individuals by saying, okay, now I'm going to give you to the Son. No, no, no. It is the gift of a people to the Son that guarantees and underlies the fact that they will believe in the Son. It is the absolute certainty of this gift. They will believe. They most certainly will believe. I don't know how else to explain this text. I don't know how other people can explain this text away other than doing some fancy gymnastics and ignoring the clear, clear grammar and uh, syntax of this verse. Everyone he's given to the Son will believe. Look over at John chapter 10, verse 16. In church history, this verse has been one of the engines of missions, the modern mission movement. Read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, for that. Jesus says, I have other sheep that Father has given me, that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they might listen to my voice. Is that what it says? They will listen to my voice. Absolute certainty. These doctrines do not undercut missions and evangelism. They're the very fuel and heartbeat and confidence of missions and evangelism that you can go to the darkest, hardest places, people with the gospel Knowing his sheep will hear. Absolutely. Certainly. 
the mission never fails. It will here. Go back to chapter 6, verse 37. It brings us to the second line. The son's response of receiving these believers. Verse 37b. That was the father's gift to the son. Now here's the son's response. The father acted in the first half of the verse. The son acts in the second half of the verse. Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. <coughs> first half of the verse emphasized divine election and sovereignty. This half of the verse emphasizes human responsibility. The two are not opposed or contradictory to each other. And there are two things we can say about this half as well. Number one is that their coming to Christ evidences their election. The second half of this verse now moves from this chosen people in Greek, that, like I said, that, that every, that's in the neuter gender. It's a way to sort of encompass the whole. Now it moves to the masculine singular, focusing on the individual person, the individual response of this group, okay? Focuses on the individual. Look what it says. And the one who comes. The first half says that they most certainly will come to faith, and this verse shows them coming. They will come, and the one who comes. In other words, your choice and your response to Christ are real, meaningful, and absolutely essential. Nobody gets what Christ has that doesn't make a conscious choice and actively exercises their faith in it. The two do not contradict. In other words, the only way to know that if you are Christ's sheep is if you believe. You don't wait around for some sign other than this. You hear him. You look to him. You come to him for life. This verse is saying that while God stands behind any and all faith, your primary care and focus shouldn't be on whether you are the elect or not. Your primary care and focus is what? On Christ depending on him. Or flip that around. These doctrines should never produce in a true believer the fear that perhaps you are not among the elect. A fearful worry that even though I'm clinging to Christ, God may not have chosen to me, right? I'm trusting Christ, but what if God didn't choose me? This verse says that absolute that never happens. Why? Because your very faith evidences God has chosen you. That's why you have it. It wasn't you. It's because God had already set his love on you. Second thing, verse 37b tells us, is that their coming to Christ is met with certain reception. Look what Jesus says. The one who comes to me, I will most certainly never cast out. Very strong in the original. To be cast out is to be rejected or forbidden to be among Christ's flock, to be among his people. The line really begs to be read in the affirmative. The one who comes to me, I most certainly will receive and welcome with open arms. It highlights the delight and eagerness of Christ to receive those who come to him. Is that how you picture Jesus? Is that how you think of him? Is Jesus stingy to you? Is he cold and slow to show grace to you? This verse says that Jesus is not like that. There is not a single person who believes in Christ 
who responds to Christ with even a seed-like verse 35 kind of faith that Christ does not welcome with open arms. Yes, there's false disciples, but he responds with eager reception at the first sight of this kind of faith. Look at the next section now. That brings us to the next one. It really gives us the reason why. He's so eager to receive these people, so eager to pour out everything he's achieved for them upon the first sight of faith. Brings us now to verse 38 through 40. The son's devotion to the father's desires constrains him to save, elect, believers. Look at verse 38. The son's devotion to the father is stated. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is an echo of chapter 5, verse 19 through 29. Remember, that was all about the sonship of Christ and his perfect devotion to the will of the Father. Very God, a very God, and yet the unique Son. Perfect harmony with the Father. It says he's come down from heaven to do the will of the Father as the perfect Son. And as he... As this, he comes to accomplish only what the Father has given to him. But, but why does he say this? Why does he even go to verse 38? Look at the very, what's the first word of verse 38? It's the word for or because. In other words, this is the reason Jesus will not cast out a single individual who comes to him. It's because their very coming was the plan of the Father, and Jesus always does the will of the Father. Put it this way. The strength of Jesus' devotion to save believers is just as strong and just as unbreakable as the unity of the triune God itself. The reason why Jesus will never reject a single one that the Father's given him, not just because of his commitment to you, but because of his commitment to the Father. And that will never be broken. Amazing assurance in these verses. Verses 39 to 40 now. He describes in detail his devotion to the Father. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father. They both end in the same way. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. So the two verses are, again, parallel to each other. So let's tackle them one by one. First one. Verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ accomplishes the Father's will by preserving the Father's elect for the final resurrection. Notice this verse again brings up those the Father has given to Christ. So, Back in verse 37, it, re- it highlighted Christ's response of eager welcome of those the Father has given to him. This verse now highlights Christ's ability and resolve to preserve all of those. He says that I should lose nothing. It's literally that nothing should perish, that I will not allow anything to perish. Same word as John 3.16. Not any of these will be finally lost. He has the responsibility and the ability as the God-man to accomplish redemption and bring these safely to their final destination. How will he do that? 
how will Christ accomplish, verse 39, preserving, causing none of these to perish, but raising up on the last day? Through his cross, through accomplishing everything that they need on their behalf to bring them safely to the end. But it also highlights another thing. Remember how when he walked on the water, he came to the disciples, he entered the boat. What happened to the boat? Immediately it was where? On the shore. Christ preserves his disciples not only by accomplishing everything for them, but by preserving their faith, coming to them, preserving them all the way to the end holding on to them until the final resurrection. He is that devoted to his people. We can go to a number of places. Chapter 10. Hold them in my hands. Father holds my hand in his hand. They can never be lost. No one can pluck them out of my hands. Then look at verse 40. It's number 2. Christ accomplishes the Father's desires by providing eternal life to genuine believers under the final resurrection. Verse 40 says... For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. This verse is not just another one of God's desires, but it's how the Son will keep and preserve these to the last day. It's by giving them eternal life. All the aspects we've talked about. Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, transformed nature, fellowship with God. Will be accomplished at the cross, and it's received by a dependent gaze of faith. This verse is another one of those just absolute sweeping statements of the freeness of the gospel in John. Listen to it again. This is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. What is faith? It's knowing you're spiritually impoverished and bankrupt and looking outside yourself looking to Christ, dependently gazing on him as the serpent raised in the wilderness. Even so you look to the Son of Man. Let me show you one more observation and we'll be done. Jesus brings his people all the way to the final resurrection by giving them eternal life now, by preserving their faith, but notice again how these two verses are parallel. Verse 39 and 40, they begin in the same way, and they end in the same way. Those whom Christ will raise up are who? What does it say? Who does Christ raise up in verse 39? Those that the Father gives to him. Who does Christ raise up in verse 40? Genuine believers. In other words, it's the same reality from two different perspectives. Who are believers but those the Father has given to the Son? And who does the Father give to the Son except those who will believe? It's an amazing package here of the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of individuals. So the good news of the gospel is how complete and free it is for desperate, hungry sinners. It's all that's the only requirement. Are you hungry? Do you know your need and Christ's ability to meet it? Come to him. Receive him as that. That's the good news of the gospel. And the good news of God's sovereignty is that if you do that, it means that God has eternally loved you. And not only that, but has accomplished everything for you. And not only that, but has set himself with all three persons of the Trinity to guarantee your perseverance until the final resurrection. So our gospel is all of Beginning, middle, and end, all to the, the glory of God. 
So that is John 6, 35 to 40. Next week we'll tackle the next, next section. And any questions, comments as we wrap up now? Yes. another will but okay I'll yeah, just right. yep. so what's he emphasizing here? yep alright so there's I would say primarily the main thing is back in chapter 5 he's not highlighting that he has a different will per se but because he's God his will is absolutely identical to the father's will right just as his nature is absolutely identical um, so but it's in such a way that he is in complete harmony and subordination so the father plans redemption the son always perfectly responds to his plan in obedience, obedient devotion to it. Um, so I think that's the main thing. Second thing, I guess by implication you could say, is the humanity of Christ. So think of the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the Garden of Gethsemane prayer in, in John. Nothing in Christ's humanity wants to go to the cross. It is suffering, it is bearing the eternal life of God. And yet... His devotion to the Father because of his deity is one such that he submits himself perfectly to the Father's will. Not even what is constraining him, my, my desire to preserve my life, but not my will, but yours be done, is sort of what this passage is, is saying at the same time. So say there's both of those there. In his deity and in his humanity, it's all in subordination to the Father. It's a really good question. Anything else? It's weighty stuff. We're in the really deep end of the pool this morning. So, yeah, you have something on? Oh, I just like what you said about how this actually fuels our evangelism. Um, I, I think it was Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, where he lays out, you know, if you don't hold to this, you're limiting the cross of its power. But you're saying its scope is broad. But if you hold to the Bible, if you're actually saying God's limiting its scope, but its power is is beyond comprehension. Yeah. And so it gives us great confidence to, to just share the gospel. It does. It does. did it all for me. Yeah. And then after you get that, yeah. then you follow that. Yeah. So it's beautiful. Alright guys, it's 1020. So let me pray. Holy Father, come to you humble and grateful. All we have is from you, the source of all. 
from your Son, whom you sent, very God of very God, and perfectly in submission to you, planned our redemption with you, and secured it through his work for those whom you gave him. We didn't choose this, Father. It's mercy, mercy, mercy from beginning to end. I ask that you use these to humble us, use these to make us bold, use these to make us holy, use these doctrines to cause us to love and cling to Christ more. Lord, may you get all the glory. We love you so much. And ask that you would bless the service to come the rest of our day. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen.